views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Station three, clear. Arming. Arm detonators. All stations to safety. Stewart. News. What, the Dutch house? No, better. Bonafide takeover bid. A raider. They're offering our stockholders 20% above current market price. Well, that's great. That's all I need is a proxy fight. No, we've got to consider it. With so many of your assets tied up in the Dutch house site. Bastards. Wall Street. Smart-ass bastards come in and buy up companies, kick out the professionals who built them up, sell off the assets, and just leave them in ruins. I'm telling you, capitalism's going in the toilet. All clear. All clear. Well, obviously, we have to notify the stockholders of the of the offer. Oh, wait a minute. Why don't I just buy the stocks back myself? Because you haven't got that kind of money. Well, stop. I can raise it, believe me. Firing. Firing. Nobody destroys what I built up. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 19th, 2012. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Something for nothing or one thing for another? Which would you prefer? That's probably the big question we'll be asking today. We'll also be looking at why John Stossel is depressed. And basically a few of my summer updates that I'm going to be talking about opening the show. Robert Vaughn is away today, but will return next week. So I thought I'd hog the whole hour to myself today and broach a theme that has been nagging at the back of my mind for some time now. Uh, I guess it's been more serious lately because of what I've been doing during the summer, and it's kind of been pushing this into my viewpoint. And so today's show is partially my own story mixed in with the bigger story of what I've discovered, or why I think that capitalism is headed for the toilet, as was suggested in our opener today. So, uh, for, at least that's how, what a lot of people would like to see happen to it. For me, uh, summer is the only time I really get to catch up on backburner projects, one of which, in my case, means archiving past activities and efforts, among which have been the online archiving of this show's predecessor, and it was called Left, Right, and Center. I was really procrastinating on this project, but since starting it only a few short weeks ago, I I think it's going to be all done by, I'm guessing now by the end of August anyway. As of today, there are 90 broadcasts already been made available at a click of a button, something we couldn't do to any significant level back when the show first aired. Uh, Created and hosted uh, by London talk show personality Jim Chapman, Left, Right and Center was launched and aired live from the studios of CJBK AM 1290 on London in September 1997 as a weekly Wednesday feature of his regular three-hour-a-day show. Then Jim later exported the same feature of that show again on Wednesdays when he moved over to this station, CHRW, in the early to mid-2000s before leaving the station here in April 2007 to take a run at Tory provincial politics. But up to that point, Left, Right, and Center 
generally, with occasional exceptions, continued right to the end with its three original participants. In addition to the host, the show featured regulars Jeff Schlemmer, a lawyer with Neighborhood Legal Services who represented the left, and myself who represented the right. And then, of course, one week and one day after Left, Right and Centre retired, with the Left and Centre no longer here, this show, Just Right, came into being, where it's been going on Thursdays now ever since. Now, that any archive of the Left, Right and Centre broadcasts even exists is a bit of a miracle in itself. The earliest years of the show were aired at a time when the Internet was sort of in its audio infancy, and most people were still on dial-up. Archived MP3s of radio broadcasts just weren't being done. So the original broadcasts we literally recorded on cassette tapes right off the AM broadcasts and off and off of Ghetto Blasters, various other sources of radios. And because of their 45-minute-per-side limitations, sometimes we needed more than one tape to, to, to grab a whole show. So you can see how much technology, the things we take for granted today, how things have changed even on just doing something that simple. But it's from these tapes that the online archives originate. And given that I was part of it, I feel odd and, you know, maybe a bit immodest to to say this, but Left, Right and Center was truly an example of talk radio, I think, at its finest, certainly if you're interested in the political spectrum, at what radio could be like when you luck out and get the very right elements working together. Jim, Jeff and I, and this was Jim's original call, and boy, did he call this one right, pardon the pun, Um, turned out to be the best possible combo you could have had to put a really good, vibrant, and polarized debate together. It's almost like the Lennon-McCartney team kind of thing. And none of us ever took anything personally. And that kind of let us go and, and, you know, push the limit. Push the envelope, as they say. Uh, No matter how heated the debate got. You'll know exactly what I mean if you check them out for yourself and uh, expect to be surprised. The lines of debate frequently took turns that even I couldn't anticipate upon rehearing them. But I certainly do owe Jeff and Jim a great deal of gratitude for having made the whole thing possible. Whether I found myself agreeing with their points or opposing them, these debates are inc- uh, an incredible resource for anybody interested in the political and philosophical spectrum of left, right, and center. And they're now a part of history as well. For me, and for a few close friends in freedom, they were a great training ground for debate, as they can be for you. Just click on the left, right, and center link on the homepage of www.justrightmedia.org, and you can get right to them. And if you, if you bookmark that page, you'll see the updates until we finish this project. But actually, that's not the major point of my telling you this today, although it is part of my story. I might comment more on this later on. My purpose at this point is just to let you know that I've come fresh from listening to over like almost 90 hours of, of left, right, and center debate. So maybe I'm not in a quite normal state right now in terms of what I'm aware of. But I must say that the abbreviated experience of hearing almost two years of ongoing developments and debate in, in a truncated time period, it's, it's painted an astonishing picture before my eyes. It's kind of like watching uh, motion speed it up in an extremely short time frame and seeing the big picture, perhaps not for the first time, but certainly most clearly and within the field of one's immediate consciousness. Not the usual state of mind when you experience debates and events over a protracted period. So I probably have a heightened sensitivity to that big picture right now, which is why I think this is the best time for me to do this this show and this topic, to record these observations maybe for future <laughs> reference or so. 
But before we do that, there's still a bit more to my summer catch-up activities that bears upon our theme today. And that was catching up some reading that otherwise might never get any due attention. In one of the books I've recently been reading, I mentioned it once briefly before on the show just a few weeks ago, has been John Stossel's uh, 2012 book, No, They Can't. Uh, It's an excellent book. I hardly recommend that you read it for its economic arguments. But unfortunately, I can't endorse it for its philosophical or political perspective, believe it or not. The book is very cynical and defeatist. And that's understandable, as hopefully we'll discover why in a, in a little later in the, in the show today. So after reading that, and after listening to 90 left, right, and centers, and uh, of course, Stossel's book, No, They Can't, something hit me like a ton of bricks, and it weighed so heavily upon me. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to shout, help, I've fallen down, and I can't get up anymore. <laughs> Remember that, that TV ad that was advertising some kind of emergency call device for the disabled and elderly who might fall down and need help? Well, it says, if all of the freedom-loving, free-market types have fallen down and can't get up anymore in their effort to curtail what they see as, as a big coming fiscal disaster and an end to all things as we have known them, or at least as they have known them. And I guess from where they're lying on the ground there, intellectually and morally prostrate, I can understand why all they see coming is doom and gloom. But for now, that's just... Ingredient number two for the show today. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Stossel's book, No, They Can't. But there's one more ingredient, and that's the one uh, that will actually kick off today's theme with in a moment. And that is an episode of the 1960s television series of Leave It to Beaver that I just happened to catch this past Monday morning while doing some summer babysitting with my 10-year-old grandson Alexander now that he's out of school for the season. So that's how three of my summer activities met at the crossroads to bring us today's central theme. And that theme is basically this, if I can put it in one way of, one way of saying it. The, the failure of people to widely embrace capitalism is not a failure of understanding economics, which is what John Stossel seems to repeatedly stress and, and suggest in his book, No, They Can't. It's something totally different, and it's caused by what I can only call a moral evil, and I know people go nuts when you use that word. I don't have religious connotations to the words good and evil. They mean very specific things. But it is evil when it does harm, when it destroys those virtues that we need for our survival. And this is a great moral evil, and we can see it encompassing the world today. We we called it the red alert before. But that's just one way of, of typifying it. At the root of this evil is a very base desire, and that is wanting something for nothing. And you take that desire and you put it together with a belief that someone else has to be sacrificed to provide that something for nothing. And then you've got basically how most of our government policies run, most of our government economic policies. And I don't think you can fight such an evil with economic arguments because you'll lose. And that's exactly what happens. They lose every time. I've heard it over and over again, pretty much without exception. Not a single exception can I find to this deeply held motivation on the part of all those who see government as a means to someone else's life, liberty, or property, as, and to, do, to, to, to grab that, uh, to solve some other kind of problem. The left and right wing 
are no different from each other in this regard. And sometimes I got to tell you, the right wing is worse than the left. That's why we start that show off, the show off that way each week. Not right wing. It's almost religiously ingrained in the very essence of people's motivations subconsciously, having been placed there by years of government education, religious education, and secular indoctrination. All of these groups of thought think the same way. And here's something else you might notice. The people who desire something for nothing, although they never say it that way, will invariably tell you things like, and here's a big one, money is the root of all evil, don't you know? And why is money the root of all evil? Well, if you want something for nothing, that's what it is. Now, in nature, there are only two ways to get something for nothing. Either someone gives it to you voluntarily, or you take it from that person without that person's consent. In other words, uh, you can steal it, fraud, you know, defraud them of it, or use initiate physical force or the threat thereof against the person who rightfully owns what you want from them. And this is essentially the moral foundation of all non-capitalistic systems. Plunder and theft in the name of the public good. Well, I'll tell you, this is no road paved with good intentions. Those with good intentions would never harm another to achieve good intentions. So let's drop that BS once and for all. The sad truth is that, you know, when you see all these Occupy movements and anti-capitalist movements, uh, hating capitalism by elevating the desire to get something for nothing is taught to our kids from a very, very early age, though not in those terms. Instead, it is taught as altruism, as caring for others. And by the time they're old enough to think for themselves, most are unable, una- unable to resolve these extraordinarily critical moral dilemmas that they, that they end up faced with throughout their entire lives. And an increasing number simply cannot deal with the contradictions they accept and which, of course, cause all their dilemmas. So what you're about to hear is a great example of how it all starts. So picture this, and this is from the TV series Leave it to Beaver, of all things. It's a hot summer's day. By the way, this show aired in the 60s. It's a hot summer's day, as you can imagine, sort of like London's been under for the past few months now. And at a time when people, though, had very few air conditioners. And this seven-minute or so excerpt from Leave it to Beaver says more about the nature of what I'm going to tackle today than any description or explanation I can give you, no matter how convincing. And we'll talk about it when we return. Well, hello there. What you doing? We're going to dig up the street, kid. What you digging for? Water pipe. Oh, you're thirsty. Want to buy a drink of water? It's a lot easier than digging for it. <laughs> no, no, no. We got plenty of water. We got a leak in the main. Yeah, you better hang on to that bucket, son. About ten minutes, you ain't going to have enough water around here to fill a thimble. You mean you're shutting off the water? For a couple of hours till we find the leak. You mean nobody around here's not going to have any water? Nope, not for a couple of hours. Gee, thanks. (laughs) What's the matter, Wally? I'm trying to get a drink. There's no water. Hmm, something must have happened. Lucky I got this wagon full of nice, cool water, isn't it? Yeah. 
Give me a drink, Bean. Sure. Five cents for a big one, two cents for a small one. <laughs> Wait a minute. You charging me for water? Sure. You're charging Dad to fix the lawn. Well, that's different. I'm trying to earn a uniform. I'm trying to earn a uniform, too. Well, my money's in the house. I'll trust you. Large or small? Small. <laughs> Give me another, Beef. Sure. Large or small? Large. That'll be five cents. All right, all right. <laughs> Hi, Chester. Like a pick-me-up? Boy, Beaver, you've really got nerve selling water. Give me another one. All the kids are buying it. <clears throat> Anyone who pay money for water is out of his mind. Give me a small one. <laughs> so, have you gotten the bumps out of the head yet? Yes, Mom. I have my own problems. I'm having a tea party and the water's turned off. I thought you had three buckets, Mrs. Brown. Oh, aren't you a sweet boy? He's charging for it, Mom. <laughs> well, we'll have soft drinks then. You run along. June, you know what your son's doing? Well, now let me think. I believe I have two sons, and one of them's cutting the lawn. No, I mean the beaver. That little character is going around the neighborhood selling water. Well, dearie, is his heart set on earning a uniform? And aren't you the one that gave him the lecture on big business, corporate endeavor, and showing initiative? Yeah, but, but this sort of smacks of sharp practice selling water to your own brother. Well, you have to hand it to him for taking advantage of the fact the water's been turned off. Well, he's got a monopoly. He's practically operating a black water market. <laughs> Ford, was there a cleaver way back in your family who sold guns to the Indians? Oh, that was whiskey. He just got him in the mood to buy guns. <laughs> Friends in the family. Beaver's got everybody in the mood to buy water. That's uh, kind of embarrassing, though. Uh, having your son going around the neighborhood peddling water. You think I ought to speak to him? If you want to. Honey, do you want coffee with your sandwich? Well, yeah, but how are you going to make it? The water's turned off. Seeing as I'm his mother, he let me have it for a quarter. <laughs> Hey, you're running too fast. That's the way they do it at the gas station. Seven cents. Eight cents. Well, yes, Mrs. Brown, I, I know Theodore's been selling water to the boys, but I felt that... Well, I, for one, think it's disgraceful. The idea of a child taking advantage of his playmates. But the last time he was here, he got to his penknife away from him. Of course, it's none of my business, but I say it's things like this that lead to juvenile delinquency and... and communism. Well, I really don't feel in this case, Mrs. Brown, that democracy is in any immediate danger, but I will speak to the boy. And thank you for your friendly advice, Mrs. Brown. <laughs>
Beaver, what are you doing now? I figure I can charge more if I call it lemonade. Um, Beaver, do you think you're doing the right thing in selling water to your friends and neighbors? Oh, sure, Dad. I already made a dollar ninety. Not counting the quarter Mom owes me. Well, you see, what I mean, Beaver, is, uh... Well, now, look, you knew the water was going to be turned off. So, uh, you sort of took advantage of the situation to exploit your brother and his friends. I didn't exploit anybody, Dad. Well, I'm just selling water. Yeah. Well, uh, look at it this way, Beaver. If you have something your friends don't have, you don't take advantage of them. You share the thing with them. Dad? Uh-huh? Is Mr. Michelson your friend? The grocer? Oh, sure. We went to school together. Well, he's got a whole store full of food. Why doesn't he give it to you free? Uh, well, Mr. Michaels is a businessman, Beaver. So am I, Dad. Anyway, how else can I earn my uniform? Yeah. Well, um... I tell you, Beaver, this may not be clear to you now, but someday, when you grow up, uh, you'll understand what I mean about not exploiting one's friends and neighbors. Yeah. When I grow up, I think I'll know a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a statement that was. It was just made there. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to, to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And that was an excerpt from the 1960s TV series, Leave it to Beaver. When I grow up, I figure I'll know a lot of things, says Beaver at the end of that extremely well-written excerpt. And we'll hear the ultimate tragic resolution to the whole affair a little later on. It's worth shedding a tear upon hearing that, a child anticipating an end to his own innocence and honesty. Yeah, he's wondered what will Beaver have learned from this experience? And, and you know, you can read about this experience almost daily in the papers. You see it in any place there's a shortage and people want something. When Beaver grows up, he will have learned from his first business experience that selling something has a moral negativity connected to it. Trading. Offering something for something. But there's something wrong with doing that, with earning your own money. Especially when those who are buying your product, have expressed a need for what you are providing. He's also learned that wanting something and expressing greed for something seems to have a higher moral status than earning one's own way. And if you think that this is just an economic parable of a child's experience, I'll invite you to listen especially to left, right, and center numbers 74 and 75. Uh, you'll actually hear this argument made in, a, in quite a, uh, a heavy debate between myself and Jim Chapman on this. And, you know, Bieber has also learned that those who want his water are being kind of hypocritical about his selling the water. They condemn him for selling it and call anyone who pays for water crazy, but they continue to buy it anyway. Sound familiar? Think of gas. <laughs> Beaver's father, Ward, was a bit hypocritical too. Here he is, the corporate conservative who's complaining about a, a black market in water. Again, just as in the two previously mentioned left, right, and centers. Yet he, like everyone else, has benefited from Beaver's enterprising efforts. He had his coffee. He was lucky he got the water. 
He admits to admiring an ancestor who has been peddling whiskey and guns to the natives, but he doesn't admire Beaver doing something that is entrepreneurial and virtuous. If you have something your friends don't have, don't take advantage of them, he says. You share with them, explains his father. And in so doing, has just sacrificed his son to the wants and to the needs of others. And I, I, I saw that and I said, well, how sad and tragic is that? Of course, Mrs. Brown, the woman who calls him on the phone, is the real evil for- driving force in this exchange. Remember, she was the one who chose to serve soft drinks at her afternoon tea party instead of buying Beaver's water. Now, economically, of course, that was a demonstration of the fact that water alone does not compete with water in the marketplace. And this is a common fallacy about competition, as people like Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Bastiat, and others like to point out repeatedly. Though, of course, this in no way deters the something-for-nothingers. Because she, Mrs. Brown in our story, didn't get Beaver's water for nothing, she takes the political route. She calls up Beaver's father and says, Hey, I think this is disgraceful. The idea of taking advantage of his playmates. It's things like this that lead to juvenile delinquency and communism, she says. Well, Mrs. Brown is not really concerned about Beaver's playmates being taken advantage of. She's concerned about her own frustration by the fact that Beaver wouldn't give her any of the water for free. Because she wanted something for nothing. She should have been morally condemned for wanting that by Beaver's father. But he, too, was taught to hate capitalism and the virtues of earning your way in the marketplace. He instead chooses to act as her agent against the consensual and virtuous activity of his own son. I don't feel that democracy is in any immediate danger, says the father quite correctly, if by democracy he meant mob rule. But his son is sure in danger from that democratic mob which wants something for nothing. That's where the communism's coming from, not from Beaver selling water. I'm not exploiting anybody, Dad. I'm just selling water, he states very factually and innocently. And that's why it's a black and white issue to him. Because, but because he's the intended victim, the target of the other's attack to them, to the perpetrators, to th- those who seek something for nothing, everything's very complicated in life, you see. It's not that simple. It's a lot more complicated. Life's really a lot of grays, not black and whites, they'll say. And then they'll run to every rationalization in the book. Trust me, I've just been exposed to 90 hours of this. No exceptions. Do these sound like the lessons you're teaching your kids? Or like the lessons they're being taught in our government-run schools? Anyway, how else can I earn my uniform, asks Beaver. Well, this may not be clear to you now, says the father. But someday, when you grow up, you'll understand what I mean about not exploiting one's friends and neighbors. But he never answers Beaver's question. How can he earn his own way? Of course, the real dilemma faced by Beaver's father is not that the whole moral dilemma is not clear to Beaver, but that it's not clear to him. He's the one who's confused. Or is it clear to him, which is why he can't bring himself to the point of actually prohibiting Beaver's behavior, which he never does. After all, what lesson would he be teaching then? What kind of values? Now, you know, up till now I've entirely avoided the economic argument of this part of the story, which is the only part that most economists and politicians will focus on, and that's the provision of scarce resources to the greatest number possible. Yeah, I could have made that argument. 
But, you know, had Beaver not been motivated by making a profit on his efforts, the supply of water in question, which he created, by the way, by his own efforts, would simply not have existed. And no one would have gotten any water at any price. And the something-for-nothings would have only had nothing to covet and nothing to complain about. Talk about a bottom line. To, not economics, but to morality and to principle. By the way, about sharing, I think that's one of the worst lessons we teach our kids in, in the way we teach them to share, under the most inappropriate situations and circumstances. Because, you know, sharing is a two-way street. And the child who comes to expect that others must constantly share what they have with him or her eventually becomes the entitled child, who eventually becomes an entitled citizen. In fact, children should be taught not to share when they see others playing with something or have something, but to respect that child's right to the thing or activity that he owns. And if you want to share, you ask. And if they want to share, then you do it. And if they don't, then you don't. It's the only way to teach respect for other individuals, for private property or use, or for the life and the liberty and property of any one individual, you know, is not really there to be exploited by those who just claim to be sharing. So these are the constant rationalizations that we hear all the time. We're approaching the bottom of the hour now. And uh, coming up next here is the resolution to Beaver's story that we started earlier on. Sadly, Beaver ends up making the ultimate sacrifice. But in the end, I think it's the father who learns their real lesson. More to follow. I earned 65 cents. I spent 40 cents on water. Well, I earned 85 cents, but I spent a dollar on water. I've got four dollars and a quarter. That won't do you any good. After what you did, we're not going to let you on the team. Even if we could buy uniforms. Yeah. You're a crook. No, I'm not. I'm just a businessman. If any of us would have known the water was going to be cut off, we wouldn't have charged money for it. Hey, maybe we'd better have a meeting back here tonight and figure out another way to get uniforms. You can't have a meeting tonight. There ain't going to be no tricity. Look, Beaver, we told you to stay on this, you crook. Wait a minute. Hey, Beaver, what do you mean there's not going to be any tricity? Well, the man said when the water pipe broke, it did something to the tricity. When did he tell you that? Oh, I sold them water, too. <laughs> They're going to have to shut it off and fix it tonight. The whole neighborhood? Uh-huh. Hey, if we had enough money, we could buy a lot of candles and go around the neighborhood selling them. Yeah, we could charge people double. We ought to have enough for uniforms in no time. Yeah. But we could hardly buy any candles with the money we've got. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we use my money? Your money? Sure. I only earned it so I could get a uniform. If you guys aren't going to let me on the team, it's no good to me. What are you going to do? Charge us interest on it? <laughs> nope. You couldn't have it for nothing. Hey, that's okay, Beef. Let's go get the candles. See you later, baby. June, you know what Mr. Anderson just told me? The beaver turned over his water money to the team. Uh-huh. That's what I heard, too. Oh, that's pretty good, huh? Guess I really got through to him this time. You know that little talk about uh, not exploiting his friends and neighbors? Makes you feel good to know you're not raising a couple of sharp operators. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why the candles? Electricity's going off any minute. Where'd you get these candles? They don't match. 
from your son Wally for 40 cents a piece. Not worth a nickel. I know, but I was on a spot. You mean Wally did a thing like this? Next time, why don't you have your little speech mimeographed and tack it up around the house? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I wish I'd stayed single and just raised silver foxes. Oh, boy. I've been struck by lightning before, and my powers have never been transferred. Don't look at me. All I know is one minute I was a 90-pound weakling, next minute I was a 90-pound Hercules. I like it much better this way. Well, I can understand that, Mr. What should I call you? Do you know that I haven't even thought of a good name yet? What do you think of Brownie Man? I'm sure you're going to come up with the perfect name. But right now, I'd like to have a talk with you about right and wrong. Well, if you think you know that much more about it than I do... You can't charge people for saving their lives. Well, my goodness me. If that isn't worth something, I don't know what is. Excuse me, but I'm just plying a legitimate, if somewhat unique, trade to an increasingly service-oriented economy. I think you'd welcome the help. You may be Superman, but you can't do everything. Bye now. That was a pretty funny episode of Lois and Clark where someone else happens to get Superman's powers. You know, I recall on an earlier broadcast of Just Right where we heard Leonard Peikoff say that superheroes generally deal only in justice and not in economic or political issues. The excerpt we just heard from Lois and Clark was an exception to that rule. And, believe it or not, Superman lost the argument. He was correct in saying that it is about right and wrong, he was just wrong about what he believed was right and wrong and in which context. He found himself in the same untenable situation as Beaver's father did in trying to teach him about anti-concepts, like exploitation, which is an anti-concept, by the way. And like Beaver's father, he was helpless to do anything about it, despite his physical ability to do something about it if he so choose which both of them would have in any other similar situations. You know, if nothing else, I I had to think about these episodes, and I I thought it spoke to the integrity of the writers of each of the series not to allow themselves to breach the obvious moral boundaries of the issue. In both cases, differences were resolved without the use of direct force. Had it turned out any other way, I just wouldn't have been able to maintain my faith in Superman for starters any longer, and certainly not in Beaver's father. After all, what kind of hero uses force instead of persuasion, especially over a circumstance that is consensual in every other regard? Too bad governments don't act like heroes and like fathers. With government, the first avenue of action is force. Persuasion is unnecessary where no consent is being sought, so you don't even get to that level. And that's probably why journalist and author John Stossel is frustrated that well-reasoned, you know, well-reasoned out, rather, economic arguments don't seem to hold any weight in reversing this process or in preventing an inevitable catastrophe that he sees heading our way. Now, in his book, No, They Can't, he writes... 
Quote, it's depressing writing this, says John Stossel going into the final pages of his book. No, they can't. After having enunciated an extraordinarily radical economic and political plan, a pretty good one, I thought, too, for getting the United States budget back on track, he laments that nothing will be done, not even the smallest step in the right direction. Quote, we're going broke. Most reform plans are insufficient. The few that are sufficient are derided as radical, and few politicians will say anything about entitlements, end quote. I'm jokingly thinking about writing my, my own book called No, They Won't, <laughs> which is a more appropriate title for a book aimed at zeroing in on the problem, and therefore a solution. The error that John Stossel, I think, has made in his book, and it's a good book, I'm not condemning the whole thing, there's a lot of good stuff in it, but conclusion-wise, or solution-wise rather, there's not much there, he doesn't really offer you much. But I think the error he's made is the very error I've been trying to help people prevent making before they waste untold time and effort on perpetuating the same error in this in this endless cycle of non-effectiveness. He's kind of sipped from the libertarian Kool-Aid bowl, if you know what I mean. Quote, I am a libertarian in part because I see the false choice offered by both the political left and right, government control of the economy or government control of our personal lives, says Stossel. You know, I once used to say the exact thing in my early days of political awareness, and I can still say it to a point, but it's not the motivator anymore. But Stossel continues, people tend to believe that government can. How do I get them to see the countless things that government can't do, but free individuals can? Even the collapse of the Soviet Union, caused by the appalling results of central planning, didn't shock the world into abandoning big government and central planning, end quote. And in his, in, in, in his inability to find any solution or example that might be of help to the United States, he turns, of all things, towards Canada as an example of a country that has been able to manage its socialism in some kind of fisc fiscally responsible manner which perhaps compared to the United States seems that way now, but it's simply untrue. He writes, It turns out that Canada is less socialist these days. And uh, when he wrote that, I'm going, much to my own shock and surprise, living here, it's clear that we've never turned back on socialism since day one. But, but as Stossel tells a, another story, quote, 20 years ago, Canada faced a debt crisis very similar to America's today. Canada's debt to invest investment was 67% of GDP. America's today is 70%. The value of the Canadian dollar had fallen to just 72 American cents, end quote. And then, of course, the government of the day, he explains, reduced spending, says Stossel, though, not, though how this translates into some benefit for taxpayers is unexplained, because he writes that, quote, all but one of Canada's 22 federal departments experienced real cuts. Agriculture was cut 22%, fisheries 27%, natural resources almost 50%. Canada did also raise taxes slightly, but spending was cut six times more. It happened quietly, probably because a liberal government imposed the cuts. Canada ran budget surpluses, and its debt gradually went down. Now Canada's debt is less than 30% of GDP, and the Canadian dollar is worth as much as the American dollar, end quote. I'll tell you why that happened, not because Canada did something great with the dollar, but America's spending like crazy. The American dollar is dropping in, 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 in its value. So relative to ours, it seems to be, it seems like ours is going up. But sensing that we're, we're running out of time, Stossel closes off his book with one last plea for a better understanding of economics. Economics is complicated, he asserts. 
And the Constitution will save us, he suggests. Quote, some Tea Party activists understand that, and it's one reason why they call for a return to the constitutional limited government. But to get the majority of America to wake up, it may take mounting evidence of crisis. But I'm not sure voters will pay attention. If Americans didn't learn the folly of central planning from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the stagnation of Soviet economies or, or, or of socialist economies around the world, they may not learn about the danger of unsustainable budgets from the bankruptcy of Greece, of Spain, or of Japan. That's why I have mixed feelings, he writes, when I, when I read about the stupid decisions made by legislatures in California, Illinois, and Connecticut. All three states' politicians pander to unions, and their citizens will suffer for it. Maybe it will take the economic implosion of California, Connecticut, or Illinois to wake people up. One problem, he writes, is that we have had things so good for so long that most of us simply don't believe in our guts that government controls can strangle the golden goose. The enemy here is intuition, writes Dossel. Amid the dazzling bounty of the marketplace, it's easy to take the benefits of the market for granted. Government can't even count votes accurately, yet whenever there are problems, people turn to government. All our potential achievements could be, a, could be imperiled if we do not soon wake up to the fact that big government impedes rather than creates. And he concludes, without big government, our possibilities are limitless, end quote. If nothing else, we, we all owe our thanks to John Stossel for, illust- for illustrating once again why the libertarian viewpoint is pretty—it's kind of a contradictory dead end. Libertarianism is simply free market economics regurgitated as politics. It's not politics. Because they've thrown the metaphysics and epistemology, tossed out the window altogether, and they think you can run the whole, uh, whole economy on the principles of economics, which is not how government works. It's a completely tangled mess of contradictory non-resolutions about the non-essential, economics. Capitalism does not need an economic defense. It wins every time. Where it loses is in the moral arena. It needs a moral defense. A reason that makes it clear why it is the only moral system ever devised by humanity. Not devised, actually, discovered. This argument needs to be made by people who understand morality, not economics. Yet the message is not getting through, not because of brilliant economic arguments, which even and especially capitalism's enemies understand, but because of an, of, an, of an immoral commitment to wanting to get something for nothing. It always comes back to that. The right wing is the same on that. And here's the problem with capitalism. Capitalism does not allow for something for nothing. Nor does, by the way, any other discipline of science, of mathematics, of physics, or of nature. You don't get something for nothing anywhere. It's always an exchange. And precisely because capitalism is a natural and moral system of governance, it is naturally despised and hated by those who seek immoral ends to their means. Whatever those means might be, that doesn't matter. The left simply does not care about economics. They don't. You can, you can, you can point, draw that arrow from point A to point B, and they'll go, uh-huh, uh, I'd like that for free, please. And that's where you're at with them. They want something for nothing, but they don't want to suffer moral condemnation for their covetousness. And the way you want something for nothing and, and, and you know, without looking like a complete jerk is to say that you want something for nothing for somebody else, for somebody else who needs it. 
And once you've made that case without refuting it, every other economic argument, true or false, goes right out the window. Under the left's banner of this false altruism, the title of their book is, Yes, They Can. Sorry, John. Stossel spends a lot of time needlessly worrying that we'd all better wake up to the fact that big government impedes rather than creates. But he's missed the whole point. Government does not impede theft. It assists and aids it when that theft is being made for political purposes. And contrary to Stossel's assertion, economics is not complicated. Complex, maybe, but not complicated. The wires at the back of my stereo are complex, but they're not complicated. If I follow one wire to where it goes, then I can figure out how it all goes. But if I look, I look at all that tangle of wires at once, boy, it really look, does look complicated, but it's not. It's just complex. What gets complicated is the persistent evasion of making a moral argument. That's why things get complicated, because you're always avoiding, well, oh, geez, I want to do this, but it's evil. Oh, I can't say that. Hmm, how can, I, how can I get around that, that issue? And it's all about government and the nature of right and wrong. It's precisely because economics is not complicated, and quite easy, in fact, that sundry defenders of freedom from conservatives to libertarians rely on economic arguments, because it's easy. This serves, serves, you know, this serves the end justifies the means pragmatism. It's rationalism all the way. Like their socialist and communist counterparts, conservatives and libertarian arguments boil down to what each camp regards as the more efficient way of accomplishing the same socialist end. Economically efficient, they call it pragmatism, but it's really a complete abandonment of any workable and just system of governance, which has to run on principle. The free market is, the more, is, is more efficient at creating wealth, argues the right wing. Yeah, it is. But so what? You know, so, like, so what? The, the left wing could care less. Yeah, whatever. But government is more efficient at helping the poor, who would starve to death under pure capitalism, argues the left, with no response from the right wing. They just sit there and go, huh? Occasionally, a trickle-down theory will trickle down to a lower moral position than occupied before, because all such theories are merely wealth confiscation themes. You know, like, just whatever you want to... Just... The, the rationalizations are endless. Like I say, there's only one or two or three, three truths to anything and an infinite number of falsehoods because you can make them up as you go along. So these two positions, efficiency at creating wealth versus efficiency at helping the poor, have nothing to do with each other if you think about it and would normally, outside of politics, represent two entirely different goals by two entirely different groups of people who might not, not ever otherwise meet each other. One wants to create wealth, so they say, and the other wants to distribute wealth, so they say. Neither goal by itself is a threat or a problem to anyone, until, of course, you get thieves or governments involved. Left-wing governments distribute wealth to the poor by way of a unionized network of government-paid bureaucrats who become the primary beneficiaries of the system in the end. Right-wing governments distribute wealth to the, to the productive, so they call them, by way of stimulating economic activity, giving handouts and, and grants to corporations and this kind of thing. One is corporate welfare, the other one's the normal welfare. Morally, both are doing the same thing. Politically confiscating the wealth of a third party, usually those forced to pay exorbitant taxes until they simply can't afford it any longer. I'm not sure voters will pay attention to the crisis in Greece, Europe, and other countries worry Stossel, quite needlessly. If they did concern themselves with these crises, 
What could they do? Not much. Because unless and until a political party based on the principles of capitalism, the moral principles, not the economic ones alone, arises on a political scene, as voters, they will have no power and no choices in this, and never will have. It'll be socialism, socialism, and more socialism, just as it's been the direction of government since I've been in this country. Now, in the very watchable and enjoyable TV series, I don't know if you've ever watched this one, Jeremiah is a post-postmodernist world, the kind of world being envisaged by a lot of today's Occupy movements, where knowledge is in short supply, everyone lives without technology and at a subsistence level. However, unlike the Occupy movements, this new generation is trying to lift itself up once again to a semblance of civilization. There's no big centralized government in this anarchistic period of future history. Though several self-appointed governments, often ruled by former criminals or those not much better than criminals, are making an attempt at re-establishing some semblance of order and civilization. In the following excerpt from the first episode of Jeremiah, we find our lead character, Jeremiah, what, what, what do you know, walking into a public market area of a small community. He's never been there before. And above the, the market is this huge, huge banner, and it says, one thing for another. And he's a bit surprised to find a strange level of security and confidence abounding in this marketplace and discovers why. When he arrives, he witnesses an attempt by a gang of armed thieves to rob the vendors in the market. Then he hears a loud whistle blow, and everybody in the market hits the dirt, except the unwary thieves. That's what you need to know before you hear the rest. It goes like this. I got two. Count them two fully charged D batteries. Nobody has batteries anymore. You can't charge them past a certain point. I said fully charged and I meant fully charged. Money back guaranteed to work. What are you asking in trade? Cough. Whole bean, ground, freeze-dried, I don't care, just as long as it's cough. Coffee. The last boat from South America came in 15 years ago. Or gas. I'll take gasoline and trade. Get out of here. If we had gas, we could charge our own damn batteries. Nobody's holding gas. Guy! Don't buy move! Jimmy! Get stuck! Hurry up! No, please, look, look. You're all I've got. Seven. Oh. heard a lot about you it's an honor what you want those are my batteries i came here to sell them wait wait you didn't pay me for it. i don't pay for anything i already own and if they're in my hand well <laughs> i own them 
that's not fair. One thing for another. Excuse me? One thing for another. That's what the sign says. It's the law of the marketplace. You made the rules, you hung the sign. Figure you ought to abide by them, same as everyone else. <laughs> sure, why not? Anything of value you find on him, it's yours. I don't know if this guy... Say thank you, Theo. Thank you, Theo. You're welcome. Ooh, I tell you, Jeremiah got himself into a bit of trouble with that bit of libertarian logic. <laughs> you know, that's the problem with government protection. It wants its cut. And like any service provider, it has some legitimate claim to that cut based on the same principle. One thing for another. Jeremiah may have taken an unwarranted risk by shoving that very rational and just one thing for another principle in Theo's face. By the way, she was the authority in that marketplace. After all, she just saved the lives of all the vendors in the marketplace and was due some sort of compensation for the services rendered, right? And in the absence of currency, I mean, remember, this is an anarchistic world, to facilitate the provision of some form of government protection... Getting to claim the assets of the criminals that they gunned down was certainly one legitimate way of getting paid. So if you ever want to check out that show, it's very interesting. You know, if a person's attitude towards and opinion about capitalism will probably tell you more about their politics, philosophy, or religion than any other single marker of assessment. You know, they say just follow the money. Well, that's because capitalism involves money and the creation of wealth, most specifically, which is more than just money. And because of that, you can learn the true nature of what someone really believes when you get their opinion on capitalism. It's one thing to talk to other people about individual rights, the dignity of the individual, life, liberty, property, equality, fairness. If you're trying to uh, place them on the left or right of the spectrum, those issues alone might lead you to a false conclusion. You think they're on side or even against you, and then when it comes right down to it, the capitalist question, you discover that they're definitely not what you originally thought. Let's face it, nobody left or right is opposed to the motherhood and apple pie issues until it involves someone's free will exercise through an exchange of money. Then you'll hear about all the limits you've got to put on those things. Oh, capitalism's fine, but you can't have unfettered capitalism, say both the left and right wing in unison. And of course, you can't exploit your market unfairly, they say. And by gosh, the right wing especially will set up a competition bureau to make sure that all consensual activity will somehow end up with somebody's getting some, something for nothing, because that's what it's all about. Our moral guardians will confuse selfishness with greed, profit with exploitation, loss with moral exaltation. So if we keep telling those who want something for nothing, not only that it's okay to do so, but that, 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 you know, that they'll be the government's major constituency, the political economic result is what we euphemistically call entitlements. Government payouts, which means the guy who gets something for something also has to support the guy who gets something for nothing. 
And of course, you know, there, there's always that ever-present question, which I'm not dealing with today. What do we actually do about the poor, handicapped, or otherwise? And those few relatively, truly unable to help themselves. Uh, you know, I only request one, one principle be followed, thou shalt not steal. There's no limit to the options that could be pursued in the answering of this question. But the something for nothing rejects them all in favor of the only one option, government coercion as a solution to all human problems. So all I can say in conclusion is I wouldn't be too worried about what we call unfettered capitalism. No state has ever allowed such a condition to exist. That condition, of course, being a separation of economics and the state of economic choices. And in the absence of unfettered capitalism, we may get something far worse, unfettered government. Isn't that scary? In watching free market advocates, uh, you know, trying to prevent a crisis of unsustainable budgets, there's a grand irony that additionally presents itself. In addition to everything else already said, by advocating sustainable budgets, we might only end up financing more unfettered government. And nothing will have changed. In fact, if you stop and think about it for a minute, historically it has been unsustainable budgets that have brought down unfettered governments. So why would I be in favor of that if that was my goal, you see? But even when that happens, what, you know, then what? No matter what turns history may take, these questions are eternal, perpetual, and unavoidable. So, you know, it's an ugly lesson to learn, but I'll keep you, you know, let's keep it focused on the ball. Everyone who wants something for nothing, to want this requires abandoning reason and reality, to say nothing of morality itself. Economic arguments won't be winning the debate, I'm afraid, and that's why those who make them will be always frustrated. Because I've said it before and I'll say it again, with friends like that, capitalism doesn't need any enemies. And on, on that happy note, we'll be leaving you for another week, when Robert and I should be back to continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Is that the same junk you're selling before? No, this is different. Oh, well. Say, it's not too sweet, is it? No, Wally bought some. How much is it? Five cents for a big one. Okay. <laughs> hey, this is water. Ain't too sweet, is it? Are you crazy selling water? Well, if you don't want it. You bet I don't. Give me my nickel back. Chester? Yeah, Dan? Stop stalling out there. Yes, Dan? But don't try to use the hose. The water's turned off. <laughs> It's six cents now. <laughs> <laughs>